My name is Max Gagliardi, and you're listening to the Talk Energy Podcast. If you're watching this video, take a moment, hit the subscribe button on YouTube, or you can find us on your favorite podcast app. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts. That would help the channel. If you're interested in more energy content, you can follow our energy company's Substack. That's Ancova Energy on Substack. That's A-N-C-O-V-A. Check it out. We do once a week newsletter, typically like pricing in there, energy information. Sometimes we do write-ups. Uh, we don't spam you. I'd love for you guys to subscribe. This episode's guest is Tom Mazzario. Tom's a returning guest on the podcast. We did an episode earlier this year at the Digital Wildcatters Empower event, which by the way, they're gonna have another one. It's a first class event. Those guys are awesome. It's probably the best mining event or Bitcoin event that I've been to. And excited to have Tom back on with all the craziness going on in the Bitcoin space. We talk about Bitcoin mining this episode. We talk about his new company, Standard Bitcoin. Talk about just all the lessons that we've learned. And the last one we did was live, so it was in person. And it was fun, but this one I felt like we really got to dive deep, everything that's going on in Bitcoin, talk about the craziness in the energy market, uh, talk about all the scams with FTX and Celsius and Luna and all that stuff, talk about just in general, everything Bitcoin, Bitcoin mining. Tom's a great guy, drops a ton of knowledge. You're going to love this one. Hope you enjoy the show. Tom, welcome back to Talk Energy. How's it going, man? Good, Max. How's it going, bro? It's going, it's going well. It's going well. Uh, hash price is not going uh, super well, although it may adjust here soon, or maybe did it today. I don't know when's the when's the adjustment. Uh, I think it's in like another week or so. Okay. I think it's the sixth of December. But uh, you know, at least miners right now are kind of holding out uh, hope because there's a, a ne- potential negative difficulty adjustment coming in. So let's uh, let's hope so. So real yeah. quick uh, recap for people that don't know you or that hadn't watched the other episode we did. We did an episode. Uh, like a live episode at Empower, which is the Digital Wildcatters mining event, like last year, I guess, or was that? Yeah, it was that. Yeah, coming up year? on a year, I think. Yeah, about yeah, a year ago, March, February. Yeah, so like this year technically, but uh, but almost a year ago, and we talked about a bunch of things on that episode. You can go check it out, and it was like our history and how we met. And I'm not going to rehash a bunch of that stuff, but you're like the guy that basically orange pilled me early on, and was one of the big. Uh, believers in the podcast and someone who gave me a lot of encouragement, which was huge because I didn't have many people tuning in for the first uh, six to 12 months. So coming up on two years that we've known each other or they're just about and uh, glad to have you back on. I think just let's start with uh, just what is your thoughts on this bear market for Bitcoin and just for miners and all the pain that a lot of these guys are going through? Yeah, I mean, I think the most important thing that <laughs> that is probably uh, that's being translated right now in the market is that this is a lot of people's or entities first kind of go around in terms of going through a bear market. Right. And, um, y- you know, and this is this is my like second full one, but I had already kind of like my second full one as a minor third one as being in Bitcoin. And you know, you can kind of mentally prepare yourself for a bear market, but until you actually are, are in it, and usually that's the, uh, that's one of the, the tricks of a bear market is you'd actually don't realize you're in it till like, you, it's like too late. Um, right. You know, cause like in theory, the bear market probably started around Christmas last year because you had the peak of, of like November, you know, $67,000 Bitcoin. And then it slowly starts kind of like kind of coming down and you're like, Oh no, no, it's going to go back up. That's what Bitcoin does. And really, you know, from like that six month period, it went down almost to 20 K within six months. So, you know, pretty sharp decline, had a ton of capital being deployed. 
um, ton of projects being deployed during that time that weren't mining when it was incredibly profitable to mine. And so people just are, you know, just got their faces ripped off and are continuing to getting their faces ripped off right now. So I think that's, you know, I think that's like a trend to watch is that it just, it's not starting right now. Although you're see, starting to see capitulation right now, um, you know, it really started this spring uh, before that big drop from like 30, 40 K down to 20 K really, really fast. Yeah. Yeah, man, there's so much, uh, to talk about with mining. I feel like you and I always have really good conversations offline, kind of talking just like operationally nuts and bolts about mining. Uh, you've taught me a lot about mining. We've like back and forth a bunch about different ideas on mining. And there is just like it, you know, the whole like philosophy around the business and how it works. I've said this a lot in the past. It's very like, very much like oil and gas. You've got this very expensive high capex business with this volatile commodity and, you know, timing the market is a lot of it, but the, the mindset and like what you're going through on how you plan and how you, your cost structure is and all these different things. Like it's seems like such a different mindset now at 16,000 or whatever Bitcoin's at in the hash price that we are today versus when it was last summer or the summer before last 2021. And, you know, the hash price was amazing. The China ban happened and, you know, mining was just super profitable. But on the flip side, mm-hmm. the hardware was so expensive. Uh, and then even like you said, last uh, winter, when the prices spiked and whatever that was, November, that mindset versus the mindset today, uh, just talk about some of the ways that you've evolved in the way you think about this business. And I know you guys are doing some cool things and we'll get into that, but just uh, you're kind of a veteran in this at this point. And um, just your thoughts generally on strategy and how people should be thinking about mining right now. Yeah, I mean, what I, what I love about mining is that there's usually folks who come in with very, um, like, I wouldn't call them eclectic backgrounds, but very diverse backgrounds. Like, that was kind of what drew me to, you know, to, to reaching out to you back in the day while I was at, Gant, at Great American Mining was, hey, this guy has, like, um, you know, this energy markets background that, like, as a Bitcoin miner, especially as we could see where things were going with some of this on-grid stuff and obviously the push into off-grid into oil and gas, like, I wanted to you know, just get smarter on, on these things. So I was like out there looking for people who understood these markets. And so now it's like, you guys have kind of saturated the market and um, you know, there's things that we glean from it, but I also feel like there's this element of Bitcoin miners who like have these specialties, whether they have banking backgrounds or specific power use backgrounds. And um, they, they don't understand that Bitcoin changes you. It's not the other way around. Like you can bring these really, uh, a, a powerful talent stacks in, but at the end of the day, Bitcoin is still going to like, like it's kind of constantly mold you and like how it molded, how it's molded me is um, I used to be like an off grid maximalist. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, and I'm, I'm still very partial to off grid from like, I have, it's like, you know, you have like two parts of your brain, your lizard brain or, you know, that, that kind of thing. But in Bitcoin, you have like your, your number go up brain. And then you have the other part of your brain that is, uh, around the like censorship resistant decentralized nature of of uh, Bitcoin, and so um, you know for off grid stuff, I tend to think of that is as like an amazing uh, use case to have like a censorship resistant component to Bitcoin mining that makes the overall network stronger. The number go up side of things is like, hey, there's a lot of de- uh, deployable capital that still wants to to come here into the U.S. and in order to do that at scale on-grid stuff has to make sense 
um, and how does it make sense on grid? Um, and so like, you know, realizing that it's not an either or, it's kind of like an and, and they have specifically two different dis distinct, I would say like advantages that they, that they play to. I think that's one. I think secondarily, um, uh, where I've learned a lot is uh, I'd never, ever want to own another mining machine in my life again. <laughs> After buying, <laughs> I think maybe you might be able to relate to that. Like, you know, we bought machines at like I don't know, 80, 90 bucks a terahash or something. Right. Um, per personally. And I'm like, you'll never, it'll be a long time before we get paid back on those. And what, what I realized is, as, as far as like building off grid sites and, 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 and doing, infrastructure for off-grid as well as on-grid is that that's actually a scarce commodity is having those rack spaces available. And if you're able to uh, achieve hash rate from that, that to me is a much more effective way of, of mining Bitcoin is to not actually own the ASIC and own that uh, counterpart, not even counterparty risk, but like the risk in terms of value. I mean, we are going to see in the next, I would say couple of weeks, Maybe five dollar terahash S nineteen J pros. Like yeah. very likely. It's wild. <clears throat> so a couple of things I've learned. I have have to train my brain to rationalize ASIC purchases when the price was higher per terahash. I think the best way that I can think about it that makes me feel better about some of the ASICs that we bought when prices were higher is that why did I get into mining? It's because I want to accumulate Bitcoin. Um, what are your options for accumulating Bitcoin? You can basically buy Bitcoin through an exchange. You could like sell a service or a product and get paid in Bitcoin, or you can mine Bitcoin. I mean, those are your those are your main ways to get it. And so the way I think about the price per terahash and then the payback period on that is like how much Bitcoin could I have bought at that time with that money? And then how much Bitcoin can I mine, right? With that unit. And if you look at it that way, it's not quite as painful because you look at it and you're like, well. I paid whatever, 7,000 bucks for this ASIC. But, you know, had I bought Bitcoin at the time, Bitcoin was like 50, you know, 50K or whatever it was when we were paying those prices, 50 something thousand, 40 something thousand. And you're like, had I bought Bitcoin, it would have been this much Bitcoin that I paid. And you're like, how much can I mine, you know, in the next, like, call it like a two year look. And you're like, yeah, I'm getting like almost as much Bitcoin by mining it through at least our cost structure. Now, if your cost structure is really high and you have high OPEX, Maybe that's not the case, but I think you almost have to look at it as like this derivative around, you know, had I just bought Bitcoin, can I get the same amount of Bitcoin via mining or more Bitcoin via mining? I think if you're yep. doing it right, you can, even if you don't time the market on the on the price. And it's like buying Bitcoin, right? Like Bitcoin dumps and you still own the Bitcoin, you didn't sell it. Like you haven't really lost money um, until you sell, if you do sell. So I don't know, maybe that helps rationalize a little bit, but like, it's really hard to time these things. And, uh, and I mean, like right now seems like a really good time to deploy, but the hash price, cause the units are so cheap, but the hash price is also really low. So I guess like going to the next question, where do you see like a uh, price per terahash hash kind of bottoming out or is there a bottom to, uh, what, mm. you know, you can pick these things up for if things kind of stay where they are for three, six, 12, 18 months till the halving. Yeah. So I guess I think about things in, in, uh, maybe a little different way. It's like, yes, you could pick up cheap hardware right now, uh, but you still have to be able to plug it in almost immediately. And I think like, right. that's the biggest mistake I myself have, have made as well as other folks who have gotten into uh, like mining at like any type of scale is that they'll, 
they'll be quick to jump on a machine. But if you cannot plug that machine in almost like immediately, it doesn't matter how cheap you plug it in. You're re it's really not a good investment um, at that time. So um, that, you know, you would think like, oh, that's pretty easy. I can just go get these things plugged in. It's really difficult. It's not, it's not easy to get these things plugged in as quick as you would think um, that, that, that that is. So that being the case, um, you know, I, I see a little bit of a rush um, from like newbies who haven't gotten into mining, who are seeing this as like blood in the water, but there it's almost kind of like a trap in a sense, because they're, they might be able to buy machines really cheap, but they're not going to be able to plug them in anywhere, um, you know, relatively soon easily because they don't realize the cost that comes come with that. Even if they're not building out their own infrastructure, if they want to host on grid, you're talking a two to three month security deposit for whatever the hosting fees would be for, that deployment, which is not insignificant. And then along with that, you're talking about mining at either, I wouldn't say a loss, but pretty close to break even for a, a you know, a period of time. And it, and like, you're like, okay, so it's not just an investment on the hardware. It's an investment on the hardware plus kind of a futures uh, bet to, to put down this two to three months deposit and the ability to like, kind of like burn money or kind of, you know, go in neutral for however long Bitcoin is in this, uh, kind of in this phase and so how whatever the hash rate in, ends up being it ends up being like you just have to be nimble enough to keep your stuff alive that's the most important thing you have to keep your stuff alive to when you get into a bull market so like even the folks like that that scenario that you talked about when we bought machines at the top of the market we only tend to think about oh no we bought them at the top of the market um, and now we're in this kind of crunch or this this bottom and it looks like devastating but there is an actual really good outcome, which is if you're actually thinking long-term about this, and this is really hard because your emotions play into it, the, the wise thing to potentially do if you took all your emotions out is, and if you believe in Bitcoin long-term, is okay, I bought at the top of the market. I should actually be, be buying more and deploying more right now. So when the machines, are, so when we do hit a bull market cycle again, I flip those machines that I bought at the top of the market and actually make some really good money and accumulate Bitcoin that way. Meanwhile, um, you're saving your money to go into the next bear market and buy machines cheap. Cause like, that's how the Chinese did it originally. They would, they would buy through these whole cycles of, of up and down mining. And what tends to happen is you're like, okay, I bought during the bull market. Oh, I'm just going to hold on. Okay. That's great. You hold on. Uh, and then the bull market comes and you're like, okay, great. It's going well. But then you're like, oh, I want to deploy because you're all of your emotions are saying, I want to put more money into it. And then you compound and make the same mistake again. So uh, there's a, you have to break that cycle, which is really hard to do. Yeah. Yeah. There will be salvage value I, in like when Bitcoin pumps again. And I just wonder, like, as we get closer to the having, this is where I get really cautious and pause because it's like you get, the, I get the same emotions. It's like, let's, you know, we've had things like, a few units have gone down and it's like, let's buy a new gen and replace these. Uh, we've had things like we have extra energy at our site. So it's like, let's put more in, but man, like when you start to look at the price today of the ASICs per terahash, it's getting way more uh, attractive than it had been, but we're heading to this cliff of the having. And when you start to factor that in, which everybody should, if they're, you know, doing this savvy and kind of forecasting out what, how much Bitcoin they can get, it just seems like, as that date approaches, which we're getting closer and closer, it's a year and a half or less away. Um, man, like how do these, how do people justify de deploying into that 
And do the ASIC prices have to just get like, do we see new gen at, you know, under $10 a terahash or something or something crazy? Like do the manufacturers, like, I wonder what their actual cost is. And do they, at some point just like dump these or they just hold steady at a certain rate. And they're like, we can't go lower than this. Sorry. Like you just got to buy them and deploy and hope that the price goes up. I mean, I just wonder as we get close to the having, like how the psychology changes for people wanting to deploy more. Yeah, I mean, so what used to happen was uh, mining manufacturers actually used to look forward (laughs) to the bear market because in China, they didn't have any demand to buy machines during a bear market. So what they could do, because farms were so plentiful there, they would just plug in their own machines. And so during that time, it was like an amazing business model for them because they could continue to ramp up production plug them in, make really good money because they had the most efficient machines on the market and then clean them up and sell them uh, once the bull market happened. So like they were making money hand over fist because of the, uh, you know, the, the China um, kind of exodus that has put Bitmain, what's minor in very different positions of how they're going to think about selling and allocating uh, ASICs because it's a very capital intensive business with the with the chip wafers and and whatnot. So I think what's going to happen is we have two things that are happening right now. You've got those guys who aren't going to commit to buying a ton of new ASICs moving forward, or I'm sorry, producing a ton of new ASICs moving forward because there's no demand for them on the, on the buy side. So they're going to kind of sit back and be very conservative. But then when price rises, you're going to have an immediate amount of like, huge like influx uh, on them like wanting to buy and then what does that do shoots the price way up on the machines however you're also dealing with the fact that there's all of these folks who got into uh, minor financing deals and i mean there's probably i mean in order of probably a million or so uh mining rigs that are out there that were minor finance that are completely underwater and you're solely starting to see these seek into the secondary market um where the pricing is really, really cheap on them. And so I think someone, I don't think a lot of these folks who are dumping these machines, like Celsius is rumored to dump 60,000 machines here in the next like very you know soon uh, hmm. kind of like timeline that they've got. There's other ones like Argo. Uh, you've got folks who are uh, reneging on their uh, purchases with uh, BlockFi loans. I mean, they're just saying, here, come, come and take uh, our machines. And so- Who's buying them and what are they doing with them? If they're going and plugging them in their cells, great. If not, uh, they're holding them and they're going to wait for price to shoot up on those machines. And all of us who are going to be like, oh, yeah, it's a great time to buy machines. We're not going to reap any benefit of, uh, you know, decent pricing. So you end up getting caught in the, <laughs> in the buzzsaw again. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. How much capitulation do you think there's going to be? We see a lot of the big name ones, the guys that are public or the ones that have made a big splash because they filed for bankruptcy. Uh, There was a map that came out, I guess, yesterday. I found it on Twitter and reposted it. And it was like all the existing Bitcoin mining sites in Texas. And then it was like, you know, ones that were under construction. And then it was like ones that have been announced or that are planned. And I think that the guys that have announced it or they're in the process of it, they're in a really bad spot because they're like building it and deploying capital knowing that their economics are deteriorating the guys that are have planned one maybe they haven't spent a lot of capital yet they made an announcement maybe they tried to raise some money they're probably maybe they have a more of an ability to pause if they want to the guys that are mining today 
they're butting up against real operational margin issues, especially if they're levered, which just never seemed like a good idea in general. I mean, I think like the story of this cycle for Bitcoin and or crypto, if you want to lump it in, is that like levering up these really volatile uh, commodities, if you want to call them that. Some of these are securities, but Bitcoin's like a commodity. Levering that up is very dangerous. And especially at the terms that people did it at, you're talking mid, you know, teens, uh, interest rates are higher. Um, mm-hmm. How much do you think that guys will just be forced to unplug because they're just losing money and they don't have the balance sheet to just like pay, you know, more than what they're getting in return? Or you've got guys that are like amateurs that are hosting and they're like, I'm not making any money. Maybe they just view it as like a way to DCA, you know, relatively non KYC, even though if they're hosting, it is probably KYC because they've got their name with someone. But um, mm-hmm. how much capitulation, I guess, is the question. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there absolutely is capitulation happening right now. That's why we're seeing, um, you know, network difficulty look like it's going to go in the negative. It's already, I think, uh, hash rate index uh, came out with something yesterday or the day before talking about, you know, there's been like a 20 or 30 exahash decline just in the last month. Um, so I think there's two things that are happening. You've got the fallout from, there's two tsunamis. It just depends how big they're going to be. One is that first uh, kind of tranche, which is all the minor financing folks who are completely underwater and, and that's happening. That has been happening for the last four, three or four months ongoing and it's just continuing. At the same time, you've got some very big, and I, and I think this side of the story is actually what has been not talked about a lot, is that you've got two of the largest hosting providers and two of the largest Bitcoin miners in terms of like infrastructure in the United States Core Scientific and uh, Compute North. Uh, Compute North has already filed for bankruptcy. Uh, you've got Core Scientific, which is, you know, the largest out of all the U.S. miners. They have they do do a lot of self mining, but they also have a very very significant uh, hosted um, part of their business. Where if they go insolvent, which is very possible given some of the um, the messaging they've been giving giving publicly. Uh, they are going to run out of cash. And this whole FTX thing made it even worse because it just squeezed things even more. You know, I have to pay a bill to the electric company. We have an on-grid, we have uh, a 10 megawatt on-grid site. And every month, if I don't pay that bill on time, my electricity is getting cut. Now I'm sure that there are some special deals that some people have, but I, I know for a fact, a lot of these utilities are watching the mining segment really closely because they don't want to get caught, um, you know, getting rugged. And so, what happens when Core Scientific, Compute North, or any other large hosting providers, which there are some others that are in deep uh, trouble as well, when they just can't pay their bills? And although you might be a client and you're paying your bills to them, your machines just go offline. And uh, I definitely think there's a pretty strong um, chance of that happening. Yeah, and it sucks for those people because if they go into bankruptcy now, all of a sudden those assets are part of the company's assets. Do the I wonder how that works. Like, is it technically still your asset or is it uh their asset so like in a liquidation can they use will the debit you know the debtors or the creditors excuse me will they be able to say hey these asics that you're hosting these are your assets you have to sell them and we have rights and first lien and claim on that asset or do the uh, this kind of gets to like a custody issue with bitcoin it's like not your keys, not your coins. It's like not your ASICs. Like, are they your ASICs? Like, not, I've never not done your rack, rack space. Yeah. Yeah. Rack space, right? Like, I've never done the, I've never done a hosting deal with a big, um, 
person. I've only mined, you know, by myself. Actually, I've hosted a little bit with you before, but outside of that, we've done all of our own uh, mining. So I've never seen the fine print with like a core scientific. The surprising, like to your point, that someone hasn't like posted that on Twitter. Maybe I should go and read the fine print and post it and try to make a splash if it says that like those are their assets. Cause if they are and they go bankrupt, like you're not going to get that back. Yeah. Or, I mean, I, I don't think it's, first of all, every contract is different how things have set up or how, how things are, I guess, like clearly defined. You're seeing that in the way that the minor financing deals have happened. There were, uh, I think it was either Terror Wolf or Stronghold. There's another group uh, recently who basically said, hey, BlockFi or NYDIG, come get your machines. Um, and the way that they structured their debt deal, they could walk away from it. Now, I know many, many other miners who did debt deals that did not have that luxury because there were debt covenants against like parent companies or against you know their, their own personal um, name on, on these things. So, uh, you know, I think though that with somebody hosting, I don't think it's so much like, hey, you're you're you have the ability to potentially lose your miners, like you know, like what happened with Compass in Russia, right? Like I don't think that that's going to happen. What's gonna what, what's worse though is this minutia or this logjam that's going to happen. I talked to a very very plugged in, um, I would call him like the godfather of mining in the United States, and you know, I asked him like, hey, what what happens in these bankruptcy situations? And he's just like we don't know. We're like watching all this happen. And he's like, because a lot of these bankruptcy um, systems or, or I guess like processes have like a, a certain way of doing things. He's like, now they're entering into our world. And he's like, they've never done anything like this before. So he's like, we have no idea what these, how these bankers are going to split things up or how they're going to classify certain assets versus not. Um, so it's really an uncharted, uh, uncharted waters and it could differ from, company to company. And I think, you know, if you follow what's happened with Compute North, um, you know, you've got groups now that are coming in and buying uh, some of their sites. So, you know, Foundry came out like last week and said, hey, we are buying um, two sites that used to belong to Compute North. So, you know, Foundry was a hosting customer of Compute North. So they tried to get ahead of things pretty quickly. I don't know how many other folks who are who are hosting with some of these larger guys have the ability to do that. One name to keep an eye out on is Marathon, though, because Marathon has had this digital light, I'm sorry, asset light uh, model where they don't want to own any infrastructure. But now that's becoming a very vulnerable part of their business, which they've openly acknowledged in the last uh, couple of weeks. I could see somebody like Marathon saying, okay, we don't want to own and operate these things, but at the same time, uh, there's an amazing opportunity here to own like gigawatts and gigawatts of um, uh, capacity, probably very cheap. So yeah. I w- wouldn't be surprised to see them make a move for some of these assets. Yeah, that's interesting. So I just, I wonder when you buy, when you host with like a core scientific, and I'm going to try to, I've got this in note. I want to look this up and see if they list it in their filings because they're a public company, right? So mm-hmm. they should have this in their, they should have this listed whether or not when you host, they buy the ASIC and you just have a right to the hash rate or if it's technically your ASIC. Cause if it's technically your ASIC, oh. then they don't carry it on their balance sheet, which means that they, that, you know, people that they have debt with don't have a claim to that. So that's kind of where I'm thinking is like, uh, whether that's the case. Cause if it's, cause if it's not really your ASIC and it's their ASIC and they're just like leasing it to you, then you're, that's serious. I mean, you, well, you know. that's at, 
that's absolutely the case with some of these, um, I would call them like virtual hosting companies. So um, not trying to disparage these um, uh, these companies at all. It's just, this is the way that they're structured, right? So um, Compass, River, um, there's a lot of these folks that act of like, kind of like as a middleman. And in that scenario, that like that, what you're talking about is more likely to happen. Right. Um, and then, and then what happens is Compass, River, um, I don't know who else does this, but what they do is they're the ones who then go and get the uh, PPA, or I'm sorry, the hosting agreement with a company like me who, who owns the mining farms or, or let's just say core scientific. So I know for a fact, Compass uh, has uh, or had operations with uh, Compute North and Core Scientific, one of the two, or if not both. In that scenario, the customer who owns that, the, the customer who bought it, bought that machine on Compass's end, their title is dealt with with the relationship with Compass, not the uh, hosting provider. So, uh, however, that those are the contracts that you need to go look at. Um, for that particular situation that you're mentioning is like when you buy a machine from compass or river or who else, like who actually owns that? Yeah. Um, because like you can't actually sell that hash rate because that is a securities. Like that's like the whole idea of cloud mining and why you can't do it here in the United States. If, if that's the case. So there is some ownership there, I think, um, or there has to be some ownership there in that case, but it becomes kind of murky. Yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting one to think about. Uh, going back to kind of like this off-grid, on-grid thoughts that we've had, we've talked a ton about this. And I think that like where my thoughts have evolved since I've been doing this for a while is that the holy grail seems to be, in my mind, if you are someone who can mine Bitcoin and then have other revenue streams. And ideally and we've talked about this a bunch and ideally if you could have revenue streams that like weren't tied to Bitcoin, which is hard because like in your instance, like you guys do have revenue streams, you have hosting that's tied to Bitcoin though. Right? Like, so you're making revenue off the hosting. You can use that to mine yourself. That's like somewhat insulated. Um, that can cover your costs basically and, you know, afford you the ability to not have to sell Bitcoin to cover expenses or to sell less maybe. Um, and then, the, but the obvious one is like, energy producers or oil and gas producers or even like utilities and grid operators, which I don't think they're just so regulated. They're probably not going to get into this, but like, you know, if you're a guy that has a bunch of oil wells and you can mine Bitcoin or you have excess natural gas, isn't that just kind of like at the, in the final analysis, isn't that sort of like the Holy grail? Cause you're kind of like, I'm doing this. It's a treasury thing. I can withstand anything because my costs are covered. And it's like, this sucks that the price is down, but it's like when oil went negative, you wouldn't have sold the oil if you didn't have to. Like if you could have stored it and the storage costs were zero, then you would have been like, I'm not selling any oil in 2020. Mm -hmm. You're like, I'm holding it. Um, it. Like in the final analysis, like is wouldn't that be kind of the holy grail to Bitcoin mining is having these multiple revenue streams if possible? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's why, you know, you've always talked about it, how incentives play such a big role um, kind of in, in, in this vertical. And that is a perfect example of that. I also think that that's where, where things are going to continue to go towards is the mining will continue to go towards hands that are more closer to the, like owning the complete stack and being vertically integrated. I know that term gets used, uh, right. you know, kind of ad nauseum, but for example, I look at like the on-grid play that we're doing uh, here in Tennessee. Um, we, 
this is a unique use case because we had a small electricity co-op who approached us. This is not an inbound, like we weren't doing outbound trying to go find places to plug in. We had a utility approach us and say, hey, look, within our greater, you know, they're under the TVA, which is this kind of big um, Goliath of kind of a, a um, an energy grid provider here in the United States. They said, hey, we, we, we a couple things that are going on. We live in a very rural area. We do, we have population decline. There's no growth on the uh, either residential side or on the commercial or industrial side. That means that adversely, because they're a co-op, that, that their rates are being affected negatively to their customers. Meaning if we don't figure out a way to grow, then our customers' rates are going to go up. And therefore, like they're, they're mandated kind of as a co-op to like figure that problem out. And so they started approaching Bitcoin miners to say, hey, come and take, we've got excess amount of um, power here. It's usually in the, let's say, for some of these smaller co-ops between five megawatts to like 25 megawatts. Yeah. That's all you're going to get in these areas. However, that customer coming in and taking that from, from one of these co-ops provides rate stability. They call it grid stabilization. That's how these guys talk to each other around here. And the more I think about it, like the, the more they get educated on, on Bitcoin and like kind of its, its properties and, 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 and ways to manage the volatility they are going to be the ones who are most incentivized to say, wait a minute, these companies that we're basically selling power to are basically an extension of our own infrastructure. Right. They're setting up right next to our, our owned and operated substations. And they're basically plugging in and acting as, I wouldn't call it a battery, but there's some type of use case there that if they were smart and educated on this, they could say, okay, well, we could sell, we can continue to do this and sell it for a very small margin, you know, to these Bitcoin miners, um, or potentially we could actually partake in this and make way more money off of our electricity, thus providing a way to actually push instead of grid stabilizing, it's actually like making it, uh, materially better for their, their consumers, um, that, that are on the grid for them. This is a really important point And one that is, uh, often overlooked by the layman who just looks at this and it never fails. I post something on Twitter about Bitcoin mining. Yesterday I posted that map of Texas and there's always a guy or people in there that are like, this is the biggest waste of energy. This energy could have gone to somebody else. This is totally ridiculous, you know, but they don't understand how the grid works. It's like the grid has to have excess capacity. The more utilization that they can get, the more stable that they can get, these grid operators, they like this, right? You talk to somebody now, if it gets too big, you know, maybe they push back. I, I think it's interesting to talk about ERCOT and how much hash rates on there and the risks of that. We can, that's a topic that I had on my list, but, but in general, I think it's a good thing if you're a utility provider or an electricity provider and you, your goal is to sell power, to sell energy. And if you can have these stable uh, baseload customers that steady Eddie, and you're going to always have excess. That's just the nature of the grid. You have to, it's designed that way. And then especially if you throw in uh, all the intermittency and the chaos that renewables bring to the grid, which it is chaos. Um, and it's, there's a bunch of it going on. It's actually these, you know, these utility companies should embrace this. They should uh, be happy about it. It's interesting to hear from you that uh, some of these guys are, and maybe as they get more comfortable through these, through the years of doing it and through these cycles, be pretty interesting to see how that evolves with these guys. Yeah. I mean, I mean like with Bitcoin, 
what I've noticed is um, it's almost like dog years. So like, like things that we're like, Oh, you know, maybe in five years, like this adoption will happen. But like, as I've seen, like adoption happens a lot faster, especially around the incentives, uh, the incentive models that Bitcoin kind of puts out there. And, you know, one important distinction with the on-grid stuff is for example, the, the grid stabilization angle that I'm talking about works really, really well for a certain subset of electricity co-ops and uh, uh, providers. For other ones, so like uh, I, I was having a conversation with a general manager of one of these co-ops and you know, she was asking me like, well, where else are you t- t- thinking about putting one of these in? And I, and I mentioned a town that was outside of Knoxville and she said, oh, I would be careful doing that. I said, oh, why? And she said, well, the, the problem is, is that they're growing really quickly. Mm. We're not growing. And she said, if I were you, I would just target these smaller places that kind of embody a lot of our qualities because this is actually a net beneficial thing. She says, you know, they, they are, uh, you have the possibility of running into a situation where, which we don't want to on, on grid, is when we become, when we start competing with, people's ability to plug in their own, you know, like keep their houses cool or, or, or hot, depending on the, the time of the year. And she basically said, look, this area, they're booming on uh, commercial, they're booming on residential, they're having all types of businesses come in, and they're trying to give you 50 megawatts. Well, they don't have that buffer. If that if they do grow like they're, they're thinking about, like, you're going to end up like butting up against their growth metric. And then that's going to become a very messy situation. And like, I didn't even like, these are just two counties apart from each other, but yet there's right. like that distinction of that use case. Now, if we were going to use five or 10 megawatts there, no problem. Then the other distinction is from on a grid by grid basis. So like you have some experience in Oklahoma. We, we talked about ERCOT. TVA is very different because TVA has an extremely strong base load, meaning 45% of the base load in TVA is nuclear power because they have mm-hmm. two gigantic nuclear power plants here and uh, actually three nuclear power plants, two reactors each. So their base load is 45% nuclear, 15% hydro, 15% nat gas, and 15% coal. So that's about 90 plus percent of all of their base load is covered by really good, consistent power. And a very small part of their base or a small part of their electricity um, is uh, intermittent power, like solar and wind. Whereas ERCOT, the model is almost kind of flipped. And so that's been the kind of like the sexy thing is to talk about how Bitcoin mo- uh, mining helps in ERCOT. But I actually think it contributes to more um, uh, bad energy choices when it comes to building out infrastructure. Whereas I think like the opposite that's happening in TVA that a lot of people aren't talking about. And it's probably the case in, in Oklahoma too. They probably have a much better baseload situation than they, than, uh, than Texas does because they haven't gone fully into like the solar and wind as much as Texas has. And in a baseload situation, that power from that power plant has to get, it's going out. There's no, there's no like ramping it up or ramping it down. So in these situations where you can have grid stabilizers, it, it is very, um, you know, it, it adds for a good coexistence between the two technologies. Whereas um, what ERCOT is doing, ERCOT is just incentivizing more windmills to get built out in the middle of Texas, where that, that power really never gets a good chance to meet that end consumer 
it's kind of like wizardry how it's it's all worked out because like you know with wind and solar there's all these renewable energy credits that are built into um, the actual development of them and that's the main driver of what is causing that boom there it's not actually that it's a, a net benefit to the consumers in texas yeah yeah it's a really good point um, and a really good way to think about the grid it's interesting how bitcoin mining can teach you so much about energy it's taught me a lot about energy um and i think about this stuff all the time what do you think about the risks of so much mining going on in texas i know this is something we've talked about in the past offline i can't remember if we discussed it on our last uh our last pod that we did but seems like a lot of concentration risk and potential regulatory risk. And it's kind of like a, a big bullseye uh, for people that would, for, you know, some regulator or some politician to make a splash. Uh, they kind of, they have a target on them. I mean, I know right now the governor is really supportive and politicians in general there seem to be supportive, Ted Cruz and others uh, at the, at the federal level. But I just wonder uh, how risky that is. I feel like guys like Gideon Powell is like, Nah, this is the greatest thing ever. He's a big Texas, you know, Bitcoin mining mm-hmm. guy, but like He's a big, big pom pom guy for Texas for sure. He loves it, right? But what do you think uh, about the risk there and for people wanting to enter that marketplace? So those guys are amazing uh, advocates for Texas, and I think you know there should be more advocates in other regions that are doing this. Just like they should model the, the I would say, like the marketing and in the way that they've done outreach. I think the reality of what is actually taking place in Texas is very different. There is all of these proposed uh, build-outs, but there's not as much meat on the bone as you would think. Um, I, I what's, what's funny is like the amount of projects that were talked about being added in Texas were in like the tens of gigawatts. Um, like like you mentioned, the there's a, a vulnerability in that, not just because um, things can change, but like I even look, or, so even last year before the, um, the, the cold snap that, that happened down in Texas, uh, last year where people died or was in 2021, uh, in yeah. 2021, when that happened, um, I was there during that time, uh, ERCOT had faced immense pressure. Now this, we had, there was already folks mining down there. There was all this talk like, no, it's so easy. Well, f- just from the fallout of that, came a clampening down of a lot of projects. So like there wasn't even a need for a, a, a signature, you know, on somebody's from the governor to change things. Cause that's in reality, that's all that needs to change in a, in that kind of environment for like the way that you do business there to change overnight. And that's sort of what happened there um, where it kind of like, I wouldn't say it stopped a lot of projects, but it created a lot more red tape. And I know there have been some massive, I'm talking multi hundred megawatt projects that are just sitting there mothballed. In fact, it reminds me a lot of what we see in China with these like zombie cities. There are zombie mining farms. It should be like somebody's. I'm surprised Vice hasn't right. gone and done this yet. But there's literally hundreds of megawatt farms that are sitting there already like built. There's containers there. There's transformers, and they just can't get turned on right now. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, yeah, it just seemed like that was the gold rush, and it was the big shiny thing. And it's like. Uh, you get kind of caught up in that tide, but you know, there's only so much that can be done. And at some level that's a business risk. And I think it's kind of, it was glossed over by a lot of the hype. Um, talk about standard and what you're doing now. And, uh, we hadn't got into this yet, but just kind of, I know you've done a couple different things since we've met, but what you guys are doing now, I think is exciting and you've got a good mix of, uh, on grid, off grid prospects, but, uh, 
talk about what you guys have going on. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, kind of like the journey that we've, we've kind of taken is, you know, originally started great American mining, um, worked together kind of like with a, a core team there. We, we left great American mining last year, um, and went over to Cathedra and I was on the management team, um, over at Cathedra and, and, and really worked on getting a lot of their machines, uh, put live in a very challenging market. And so during that process, um, it opened up my world to on-grid where primarily prior to that, I was only an off-grid guy. So, uh, I kind of saw some of the challenges as well as some of the unique opportunities on grid. And during the summer, uh, I was, you know, just very fortunate to be right place, right time, really good relationship with a, a, a site that was essentially ready to go. But because they were building during, um, you know, they started this process during a bull market, they were not able to finish this. And so I was able to come in and uh, with our team and, and finish out this on-grid project. And that was kind of like this, uh, you know, aha moment of, hey, there really needs to be a Bitcoin focused infrastructure company um, that builds out on-grid and off-grid uh, deployable mining operations. And so, uh, you know, the off-grid side of things is very like small and boutique, uh, distributed hash rate, consider it almost like um, fight club for Bitcoin miners, like, you know, friends and family folks who, who want to mine Bitcoin, um, they, they do that with me off-grid. I've got a bunch of um, uh, upstream data hash huts that are, you know, kind of spread out all throughout Appalachia. And then on the on-grid side, um, you know, we're really working on that model that I discussed earlier with these um, call them grid stabilization plays. I think the the difference though with on grid is that because I I own all of the assets on off grid. I own the capex, you know, the build out. I also own the resources under the ground that are coming up to to make it. So that that makes things a little bit more stable. On grid, I almost want to set the company up as a uh, a development company, and I I think like what this market has shown us is. You had companies like Marathon and actually a lot of companies who were like, they wanted to remain asset light. And so they wanted to focus on getting machines and getting them live because they felt like that was the best use of their capital. Mm-hmm. Now they're seeing, hmm, maybe that was not the wisest move, or at least we maybe should have hedged a little bit more. And so they're seeing the value in actually owning that hosting uh, site, maybe not wanting to build them and maybe not even wanting to operate them, but at least, at least own it. So they're not going to get their feet pulled out from underneath them. And so, um, I think what we're, what I would like to see in the future is I build out these sites and I work with trusted um, partners, Bitcoin mining companies who eventually will take over these sites or buy them from me. And I can just continue to uh, go out and build more and almost treat it like a, a real estate development firm where we can build sites for a specific cost per megawatt which is a very difficult thing to obtain given the, the fluctuations and supply chain and things like that. But those parts, th- those parts of that project were really fun for me. And that's where I you know, kind of see things going for us. Yeah. And I would make a plug for you and you guys uh, in particular for people that are interested in mining uh, when you guys do have available rack space, if you'll open that up publicly, I don't know how that's going to be. You probably already have investors and people that you know, uh, through your connections and through your existing investors and through Marty and people like that. But if it ever were to be more uh, general public or even like high net worth individuals that may come across this, uh, it's a good play to dip your toes in doing hosting with someone who's trusted, who's, you know, set up the way I think you guys are set up versus uh, 
trying to mine yourself. Like I've, <laughs> I've dove into it and it's a lot. I mean, it's like last night we got really cold and we had a unit go down and it's like, okay, well, we got to have someone go out there and, and uh, restart it. When I buy unit, I mean generator. So we've had all kinds of different things we've had. And now if you want to learn, I think doing it yourself is the best way to learn. But if you're interested in just like mining and you want to understand it a little better and work with someone, if you guys ever get more open uh, to investors or things like that, I don't know if you're taking people, if your sites are already full, but um, I think you'd be a good person to talk to and I could get you in contact with Tom, but, um, it's not for the faint hearted and it's not for somebody. And I still come across people that remind me of me two years ago. They're like, Oh yeah, I'm going to do this big Bitcoin mine. And it's like, I think one of the biggest blessings I had was that we kind of legged into it and got to learn as we went uh, along because there's just so much, man. I mean, even the things you and I talk about it, just like back office stuff, like managing just how to do custody and like things that seem like they should be simple, but you're, you know, going to even get like a business account set up on somebody that's like an exchange. Like if you have a partner in it and they're like, Hey, I want to be, have this converted to, to fiat to go to like a Kraken or somebody, even just getting that set up is a huge pain. I mean, there's just like so much that goes into it uh, outside of uh, thinking you just plug these machines in. So I don't want to gloss over it, make it seem like it's super easy. And I've had other really good, mining guests on and guys that have lived and breathed it. And just want to give that word of caution. Uh, I've never like been someone who's like promoting it being like, Oh yeah, everybody should go out and do this. Like it's definitely not for everybody to do it themselves. <laughs> Would you agree? Yeah. I think what you guys did was unique because you got into it uh, relatively quickly. And then you like, you guys are able to kind of like uh, almost have a cheat code. Cause I feel like the, the cycle from where you entered, to what you guys are doing now usually takes years. Whereas like, it was almost like a six to eight month thing where you're just like, you know what? I believe in this. I'm committed to this. Um, I'm working on all these other, you know, kind of like ways to incorporate this. Like it's pretty clear. We're going to become more and more involved in this space, especially with our energy backgrounds. We're just going to invest into like learning and building this stuff. And of course there's, you know, just that that's what it costs. There's just learning costs that go into building out infrastructure and hosting it yourself. And like, you know, uh, you know, like you said, driving out to a site that's 40 miles away, you know, to turn something on or there's, I mean, there's literally like probably dozens and dozens of um, examples to, to put that way. But at the end of the day, if you start learning these things, like you become, um, you almost get a superpower. That's why I really like the idea of people starting with home mining um, yeah. first, because you know what, if you have it um, connected outside your window and you create a little vent and you can kind of like, you know, it's like, it's almost like you're, it's like building a miniature toy or a miniature model first. And then it's like, Oh, to do this bigger is not necessarily difficult, but like you already understand that it's not trivial um, right. because there are some inter intricacies in that. And so I always recommend if someone's getting into it, like, first try to mine at home or if you have like you know a shed or something like that where you can do it do right. it and then if it's like oh okay well how do i get in plug tenant oh can't do that at home then you start understanding if you're going to make a decision to go with like a hosting provider you automatically in your head already know like oh okay they've got to account for xyz this isn't something that's like super easy whereas i feel like when people come in and they're like i want to host or i want to have my machines hosted they they have no idea what like what what goes into actually making that possible they just think it's it's really easy um and when you do understand like the cost or all of the things that are associated with it it helps you make more informed decisions on 
who you're going to place machines with or where you're going to do it or if you're going to build out your own or et cetera. Really good point. That's what I started doing. I was doing one at my home, having a couple at the house. And uh, you learn real quick, just like simple things like buying the right cord or, you know, prepping your wife for the noise. Uh, <laughs> and there's just a lot. But even that example of like my wife being like, this thing's so noisy, like you and I on a deployment that we worked on had an example where a neighbor was mad about the noise. Like that's a perfect, it's like a perfect micro way to do it and understand the challenges and the difficulties and what you're going to face, you know, now scale that up. It's like, I talked to Jason from riot a year ago and he's like, yeah, that problem you have with the cord. He's like, think about trying to order like 20,000 of these cords, you know? And like, how are we going to get them? What are they going to cost? Are they, what's their quality? You know, things like that. It's, there's a lot you can learn at home mining that can help you if you want to go and do it more at scale. Um, so we've covered a lot on the mining, just curious to get your thoughts on like the other craziness in the crypto space, like this FTX thing. And just like, when I look at this stuff, it's all stuff that if you look at like the history of this industry, I feel like it's kind of just the same thing. It's just at a bigger scale because the industry's gotten bigger, but like, I'm not surprised. Like, I mean, there was that documentary on Netflix about that Canadian exchange that the founder died and like all the, you know, the keys were lost and there's all these conspiracy mm -hmm. theories, but there's just been like mm -hmm. story after story that Bitcoiners in particular will warn about being like, not your keys, not your coins. Like, you know, don't trust these third parties. Don't be on these like risky exchanges, like all these things. Like, were you surprised with the stuff that's happened this year with like Luna and Celsius and FTX? Or is this just kind of like par for the course? And you're like, this yes. makes sense. These guys seem like scammers to begin with. I mean, it was just, you know, like anybody who's been in this for a while, the, these cycles repeat, you know, Mt. Gox happened, whatever, eight, 10 years ago, almost like right. the same exact thing happened there. There's been literally probably dozens of the same exact situations that have happened prior. I actually think this cleansing is very much long overdue. There's not as much paper Bitcoin that's out there right now. So, you know, I think like a lot of people were like, oh my goodness, the price is going to drop to like 10K or 12K. I, I don't think the manipulation that has caused it to jump like it did, as well as can cause it to go down, is out there right now. So like you're kind of seeing this like equilibrium happening with Bitcoin where, I, I mean, I'm not one of these people who reads the, you know, the tea leaves or to understand like, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at charts or anything like that. But I do feel like we're pretty close to the bottom, um, especially when you start seeing minor capitulation like we're seeing right now. That's a pretty good indicator. And I think the rest of like the junk that's getting flushed out from FTX right now um, will kind of play out for like the next 30, 30 to 45 days. And um, that's that's kind of when we can start, you know, climbing or getting out of this uh, this bear market. Yeah. Well, there's the macro stuff, too. I mean, Bitcoin, everybody's like it's not a hedge against inflation. And I'm like, it did a pretty good hedge against uh, the money printing. And if you look at like, for example, the relationship of what the Fed is doing now, I mean, the money supply is shrinking, like it's getting tighter. I think it's like the largest, I'm not a huge macro guy, I follow because I think it's interesting, but, and someone could probably correct me if this stat is wrong, but I feel like the M2 money supply, this is like the largest contraction it's ever had. And then, you know, that's correlating to one of the larger contractions that, uh, bitcoins had and like inflation in the terms of like the price of things that's kind of a lagging indicator you can look at some of the past bitcoin cycles too look at when things uh in the bear market the last bear market the fed was tightening in that as well and there's just less money less liquidity and uh risk assets which you know 
some people will argue Bitcoin is not a risk asset because it's sound money and there's mm. a fixed supply and all these things. But the reality is it trades like one. And uh, at some point, the Fed will, I don't know about pivot, but at least slow down. And I was doing some like kind of macro, you know, messing around, looking at charts and things like that the other day. And you look at like CPI and when it's had these big spikes, I think like 50% of the like four of the last eight really big spikes in CPI, you know, uh, inflation went negative pretty soon after, like in the 20s, the third, you know, in the 40s and the Mm -hmm. 50s, like the 70s period and 80s was kind of like the outlier. But like 2008, like inflation went negative. And when that happens, like, I don't know if this is going to be like that, but I, I do think that like inflation is going to come down because they are constricting things so much. And when that happens, monetary policy will change. And I do think Bitcoin's correlated to that. I'm not, a, you know, I can't foresee the future, but to your yeah. point, it seems like uh, that at some level, monetary policy will ease and Bitcoin for better, or for worse, for right or for wrong could be the beneficiary of that. Plus just like, there's just, it's just such a bigger space now. There's so many more people in it, so much more sophistication, so much more, uh, every cycle. It's like, I'm an example of somebody who's got in and really dug in and learned it. And Mm -hmm. there's just more of the, and I I believe in, and there's just more of these people that have got in and learned it and believe in it. So it just seems to me like, uh, the downside risk is less now than it was maybe when Bitcoin was like a hundred bucks or something. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. I mean, I think the way, I think the way that I look at it too, is that, um, you know, in in bear markets like this, uh, you, you if you're really into Bitcoin, it, it it broadens your horizons because you end up looking at other attributes or qualities of, of Bitcoin um, that that help you appreciate it more, other than just number go up technology. Right. And I think like that that's what what's happened here. It's like, okay, you you had a scenario where like you know the one thing that like is like the the gravity for bitcoin to go up is the you know built on the idea that like the fed just going to continue to print money okay well now it hasn't done it as much and yes things contracted uh with bitcoin but it's actually stayed pretty strong considering all of the things that were going on right the china exodus um hash rate leaving getting redeployed all of this ftx nonsense all of this like derivatives crazy Ponzi schemes that are happening around it where people are trading paper Bitcoin around it. It's just like still there. And then like, if you start thinking about like um, from a macro perspective of, okay, we know it's just, it's just a matter of when, not if they're going to change policy. So who knows when that'll be, but there are some things that are happening that are, are not related to price that are very important to Bitcoin's adoption, continued adoption, meaning um, the rise of this idea of like a, a central dollar or uh, CBDC that will then usher in some type of social credit co- score system that will usher in more potential political or free speech related uh, cer- censorship. And this is where I've spent a lot of time over the, like the last year and a half having Bitcoin change me because I used to think of those things as like properties that were like, you know, th- that's, that's for like the fringe people. But it's like, no, it's actually flipping to where, you know, we always talk about Bitcoin being like a parallel monetary system. Well, what happens when people start opting out of the CBDC system and only partaking in the in the Bitcoin parallel system where they don't even want to come back onto the fiat rails? I, you know, there was a time where it's like, oh, that's cute down in El Salvador or whatever. But I actually think there's going to be a, um, you know, multiple scenarios where that takes place here in the U.S. inside smaller communities or inside the industries in general where 
Bitcoin usage will mean like will only exist inside Bitcoin. They won't need to go outside the rails. And like and that is where Bitcoin, when you would talk about like, um, you know, when people talk about uh, Bitcoin going into hyper Bitcoinization, I think that's Bitcoin hyper Uh, right there is is when people just say you know what we don't have to be a piggyback on this broken system like yes that's helped us but at the end of the day like you can see how corroded it is and how it's infected bitcoin like all of these these are all fiat things that have like kind of like destroyed or have tried to tarnish bitcoin through this whole thing and i think the sooner bitcoiners can get out of the only number go up mindset and think about bitcoin more holistically around all of these properties that um you know, that that'll be better for everyone. I agree. And I think there'll be two aspects of it. And I think the Bitcoin purists will focus on the aspect that you just discussed, which is like getting outside of the system. Uh, A lot of these third world countries you hear about um, like Lebanon and what they're using a lot of tether, they're using Bitcoin and tether and things to try to have a stabilized currency because it's so bad for them. You see like these other countries where they don't have a good way to transact. The banking system's terrible, like in Africa and some of these countries and they're turning to Bitcoin and, and now increasingly the Lightning Network. So that's going to be one driver of adoption. I think like the Michael Saylors of the world, who they're going to, he wants like, you know, he wants like Goldman and like the traditional people to have their fingerprint on it and to be like, you know, for them to have like the stable coin that everybody can use so it can be regulated and whatever. But like that's going to happen too. And that'll be pushed forward. And I think the interesting thing is to think about like, where does this technology end up in the U.S., particularly because of where we live? And is it like, you know, because I, I liken it a lot to like the Internet, the, but for money, which is kind of a cliche thing to say because people use that a lot. But it's very similar in the sense that the Internet was kind of a leap forward in, you know, making communication better for people. And there were certain places in the world like China where they've weaponized that and they've not embraced it. They've embraced it for the negative side of it. Right. To surveil people, uh, to put more restrictions on people. Um, to do all these bad things. And then there's places like the US where, yes, there is surveillance. Yes, there are these things that are bad about the internet. But by and far, I think it's been a positive uh, for communication. It's opened up things like this, like what we're doing and getting the message out. And so I wonder with Bitcoin, there's going to be regulation, especially in in the wake of the FTX thing. And there's going to be mainstream adoption. Like I think Fidelity is now offering, you can buy Bitcoin and it's like, you don't get to self-custody it. So people are ripping fidelity there, but uh, self-custody ultimately isn't going to be for everybody. And the reality, I think like, uh, uh, Oh, don't say that. It should be for everybody. It should be, but I'm just saying like, there's always going to be people that I think that just don't for whatever reason. I mean, a good example is like my in-laws, like they're into Bitcoin and, uh, have been for a while and they've been, you know, I've been trying to tell them, hey, you just need to self-custody rather than buy it through like Grayscale or whatever, these other methods you can get exposure. And they're very, they're scared of it because they're in their 60s and 70s. And they're mm-hmm. like, I, you know, I'm worried about this. And we're trying to educate them on unchained capital and some of these other things that they can do. But like, ultimately, you're going to have this use case where it gets pushed forward in the emerging markets and for people that value privacy and self-custody. And then you're going to have the mainstream stuff. And then it'll be interesting to see in the US how the you know how the chips fall and it'll probably be a mix there's probably going to be more of a regulated uh bitcoin space and but the but the core thing of it is it's just a better technology for moving money around uh, than the legacy technology i mean look at like visa's uh income statement they're making like 
so many billions of dollars and they don't really do anything and they have no cost at all. And it's like, that's a huge tax on everyone, right? Mm -hmm. Like you think you're getting 2% cash back or whatever, but the reality is all those vendors are just increasing their prices to make up for that. So you're not really getting any money back. So there's a lot of like, I I guess the long winded way of saying that I think it will evolve and it'll go through both channels. I just hope that the U S falls more in the camp that it has now with the internet or it's cracked down on things that need to be cracked down. Like, illegal things that are bad um like whatever pick pick something that's truly illegal not like the woke you know trying to Mm. police like hate speech or whatever but like Mm -hmm. true things that are illegal um but it's led a lot of innovation foster and i hope that we go that route versus the china route with cbdc's and social credit scores and all that but all of it i think is bullish for adoption um both of those channels yeah. Yeah. I definitely think like the, the CBDC thing is going to happen. It's no doubt that that's going to happen here. Um, uh, I do think though, that the more that we have, like, you know, like, so for like this whole use case of like, for your in-laws, pers- let's, let's use them as like a persona here. They, um, right now it's a little bit too much, right. Which was for all of us at one point, right? Like that first time you send money or send your Bitcoin from, your exchange wallet to your own wallet is like slightly terrifying and exciting all at the same time, even if you do a test transaction or whatever that is. But like once you do that, especially if they have like, um, I think Matt O'Dell, um, you know, with Marty over uh, at TFTC and they've got the rabbit hole recap, he coined the phrase or he popularized the phrase having an uncle Jim. And this idea of an uncle Jim is somebody who's trusted in the family who basically handles all of that stuff for the family. And like, if you've already done the work to um, evangelize Bitcoin in your families or in your community, there's a really amazing opportunity to become that uncle Jim and to kind of like, you know, uh, you know, there's a lot of responsibility with it, of course, but I think like, that's like a next phase that you'll see people partaking with. And like, there's already amazing products that are out there right now, like Nunchuck, like you mentioned, um, Unchained, Unchained Capital, there's a, a lot of great wallets that are out there. Um, in fact, I would I would highly recommend there's um, there's a video I watched uh, from one of the developers at Samurai Wallet where he went in kind of the, the history of the Swiss banking system. And one of the things that stuck out to me was he said like during the 30s and 40s or during the 30s or in the height of World War II that Nazis held their money there in this Swiss banking system as well as Jews um, who were holding their gold there and neither one of them had their funds confiscated. And I was just thinking like, isn't that like the most, like, like that juxtaposition of having like that sovereignty and the ability, because the way it was set up, it was um, uh, anonymous uh, kind of like built in right, right away. So there wasn't any of these abilities to share that information. Like there's inherent qualities of what used to be the Swiss banking system that is built into Bitcoin and Bitcoin custody. And so um, I think like you'll see more innovation happen on like the self custody or the hybrid self custody side that will allow more and more people to, um, to, to, to be able to partake. And I, I think the thing that drives that isn't, Hey, this is cool. It's going to become from pressure. Like there's a reason why there was, you know, Unchained and some of these other sites got the uh, hardware wallet companies saw uh, upwards of like two or 300% increases in their sales right. during this time. So what, what does that come from? It's not because it's not because you want the vitamin to make yourself better. It's because you need the medicine because you don't want to get sick. And 
I think with increased, I think the CBDC stuff will actually push people into more of these options because they're just gonna be like, wait a minute, wait a minute. I don't want the government being able to like take my Bitcoin. Like that's my Bitcoin. That's what makes Bitcoin Bitcoin. And I think like the more you'll see that, um, I mean, obviously for people who are kind of plugged in, they already kind of saw that happen in Canada with the trucker. Um, I mean, you've talked about it a bunch of times, um, yeah. you know what they did. Well, why did they, why were they able to take that Bitcoin? Well, because that Bitcoin was sent to a custodian, um, you know, provider in Canada and that Canadian custodian provider had to comply with Right. Um, Canadian laws and therefore right. like it's not Bitcoin in that situation. And so um, I think people learn from, from those particular in, um, experiences. And I think people will, will learn to uh, develop more. I, I mentioned that nunchuck.io they're building like a really amazing suite of tools. And one of the suite of tools that is, that is built in there is an, a, a really slick um, way to do inheritance uh, kind of like collaboration in, in Bitcoin. And imagine if like, that's like, you know, because I, I, I can tell you, I probably talked to dozens of people who have been into Bitcoin for a while. And one of the primary reasons that they, that they accumulate as much Bitcoin as they can is to pass it down to their children. Right. And, yeah. um, and so have to have tools now that are, that are focused on, Hey, I don't want Coinbase having this power over like me being able to pass it down to my children. I want some, something else to be, uh, you know, I want to take more responsibility for that. So I, I'm excited about that, that aspect of the future. hundred percent. And I think that it's, you know, I'm just right. As you were saying this, some guys like commenting on my Twitter being like, it fascinates me. People with no investment track record go against the likes of Charlie Munger. This is the ep- essence of stupidity. Bitcoin is a scam. I feel sorry. Those for people that are wrapped up in this. It's like, I don't even want to argue with this person. I just want to be like, where are you getting your information? If it's from Charlie Munger, that dude's a troll. Like, I mean, he's, he has no incentive. He's made so much money off the legacy system. He absolute last thing he would want is for a new system to be there because he's, you know, he's the Cantillion effect. He's the closest to the money printer. Like those guys have unlimited access to capital, right? And they're he's in the most privileged of privileged seats that you can be in. And uh, I think just even studying like, you know, 2008 and what happened in the US is like when Satoshi, you know, put Bitcoin out and invented it that was such a scary time even here. I mean, there's stories of like, you know, everybody looks at their money in their bank account and a lot of banks primarily have, you know, access to low risk or perceived low risk yield instruments, similar to like what Celsius was doing, similar to like what Luna was doing, except they're regulated. Right. So they're only allowed Mm -hmm. to do certain things. They make yield on your deposits. Um, That's how banks make money. And in the 2008 uh, financial collapse, a lot of people owned, you know, debt from like the insurance companies. And these were the same insurance companies that had, you know, also sold credit default swaps to protect against mortgage-backed securities. Mm -hmm. And what happened, and a lot of people don't know this, is that, um, I can't remember the exact date, but the U.S., the largest money market in the U.S., which is tied to virtually every bank in the U.S., it depegged. It went to like 99 cents. And that had then like almost to like 98 and a half cents or something on the dollar, which had never happened before. Um, outside of like the Great Depression when there was all the bank runs. And that's when they had that all-night meeting and the federal government stepped in and was like, we have to bail these people out. I think it was like AIG was the big insurance provider. So even within just my lifetime, my professional lifetime, we almost saw, you know, everybody's bank accounts in the U.S. basically go illiquid 
And people would have like had the government not stepped in, which they did. And that's everybody's argument is like, oh, the government will already stepped in, will always step in. Well, guess what? We've added $20 trillion, $25 trillion since 2008 to the, fe- mm-hmm. to the debt, you know? So, and we keep adding to the debt. And so at some level, and, and if you look at like these other countries, like I mentioned, Lebanon, this is like a normal thing that happens to people all around the world where they look up and they try to go get their money out of their bank account and they can't. And right. so anybody that's, anybody that's, um, relatively high net worth that you have some amount of money in a bank, go try to make a transfer, go try to make a transfer of a six figure transfer. It's really hard. Some banks won't mm-hmm. even let you do it. Right. You got to go, yeah, go in person and then you might have to do it in tranches like, Oh, we can do this much now. And then next week we can do some more. It's because they, you know, especially if you're like a really, really high net worth person, like if you had millions of dollars and you wanted to move it around, like they just, it's not easy to do that. So what you realize is that your money is locked up in these institutions. They have risk. There's counterparty risk there. Now, is that risk low in the U.S. versus other parts of the world? Yeah, it is here. Um, but to have some portion of your wealth kind of outside that, and that's why gold's been so popular for years. And I actually like gold. I'm not one of these Bitcoin people. I, I think gold is a fascinating thing, too, because it has a lot of properties that are similar. has a lot of downsides as well. Um, but gold is a similar concept. This idea that you can like hold wealth and store it outside the system. And I just think people here in the privileged world, I hate using that word, but it, that's pretty much what it is, right? They, they may mm-hmm. just not see that. And I think is, uh, unfortunately, it takes like catastrophic things in the financial system to kind of open people up to the idea and like, or things like the Canadian trucker thing, like you mentioned. And then that's when people are like, well, wait a second. Like, I thought this was my money. And it's like, no, it's not. Like you have to have a permission slip to access it. And um, with CBDCs, it's going to be even worse to your point. It's going to be like, oh, by the way, uh, you're not getting yield on your money. You're getting negative interest on your money. Or, oh, by the mm-hmm. way, you can't go take that vacation because you've already spent your carbon limit for this year, you know, things like that. And that right. is where there could be that tipping point where people are like, oh, I get it. I get mm-hmm. why this would be valuable to have this. And so um, anyways, I'm kind of ranting, but uh, this is fun well, stuff what, to talk about. Well, well, what you described with the, the guy who tweeted at you, um, you know, like, a Bitcoiner's perfect response, like, first of all, uh, sometimes people say, oh, Bitcoin maxis are toxic, all this other stuff. But like, like the fact that he's quoting Charlie Munger, who's openly praised the CCP saying that their system has worked better. Okay, let's just like, let right. that sink in, Mr. Like, you know, who's, yeah. who's tweeting you like this. Like, you have a guy who's openly advocating for, hey, this CCP system is actually good. Um, um, right. a, a communist system. So Hey, right there, if that's what you want to do, that's great. There's no point in arguing with people like that. Um, and then, but, but if you go back to like Satoshi, uh, there's always this repo- response that you'll see floating around by Bitcoiners where they'll say, if you don't believe me or don't get it, I don't have time to try to convince you. Sorry. And that's like right. one of um, uh, Satoshi's most famous quotes because Dan Larimer, who's like a noted altcoin guy who's like started like EOS and like a bunch of other uh, um, altcoins was trying to get Satoshi to like figure out or try to like talk him into doing like faster um, transactions and all this other stuff. And he was just like, at, at, at some point, like we we're already in, like we're already in that alternative monetary network in like these people are not, and it's completely voluntary. And it's just kind of like, if you don't want to be in it, great. Don't yeah. <laughs> like we're in it. And, uh, and, and so that's kind of like a common response. It's a great response. I want to try to educate and not be toxic, but sometimes you can't help it because uh, people are toxic back to you. And the last little mini rant I'll go on because it's been really bothering me lately is just the total um, 
pass that China is getting and what they're doing, man. I don't know if you followed on Twitter, just all the stuff going on with like everything that's happening with the zero COVID thing that in what happened with Hong Kong and what's happened with the Uyghurs. And just, I mean, you know, everybody's like got the Ukraine flags in their bio and yes, Russia's doing some terrible things, but it ain't nothing. I mean, Putin's like a, it's nothing compared to what China's doing right now. I mean, if you think, I guess like millions have been displaced in Ukraine and I think they've estimated maybe a hundred thousand people have died. Like China's doing that in a month. Like they're killing people left and right. And the difference is, is that China, everybody's making money off of them. You know, like all these mm. celebrities, all these athletes, all these companies, Tim Cook, I, Apple, like, and, and to be fair, like if Tim Cook didn't make his iPhones in China, he'd probably lose to a competitor that did. China is just, they're terrible and we should all be like against it. And, um, it just really bothers me, uh, seeing what's going on over there. I just, it, I, it, it truly like it bothers me. Um, and I mm. hope to, I hope that the world can come to grips with the fact that, that, that they're the worst thing that, of humanity right now, I think. And that may be a harsh word. Uh, I, think, I think, I think it is a little, I think it's a little overstated I mean, from the standpoint of, um, so I stopped watching cable TV. Yeah. I think back in 2006, 2007. Right. And um, I'm always like triggered. Like my wife would be like, when we go to the airport, she's like, whatever you do, don't, don't watch CNN. You know, it's like on the monitors. I'll start like yelling at the, yeah. at the TV and stuff. Cause it's like pure, literally pure propaganda. Like the entire, even if it's you're not watching CNN, everything is pure propaganda. Like from the, the messaging and the shows that you're getting to every single commercial is like, you're literally being programmed. Right. And I think of like, for example, um, we have the, the Western media has had no problem um, leaking out all of this um, information about China. Like, right. oh, look at all these, look at all these protests and this people getting their doors welded in and buildings on fire and all this other stuff. But yet, have you seen any of the protests that are taking place in Brazil right now uh, on Western yeah. media? Nothing, Not really. right? Same Not really. thing that happened in New Zealand and Australia during COVID. Like, they didn't want to show any of this stuff, and so. Although I would say, yes, like any type of massive status regime, regime is a direct, um, you know, is, is a direct competitor to like humanity flourishing. Um, I think it's important to not get too caught up with that polarization because like, you know, we're, we're having like rose colored glasses uh, too, because like we're not seeing, you know, we're, we're only seeing it hyper-focused on them when in reality like we have regimes that we're friendly with and even our own country has done things to to ourselves where um you know like uh, we have people in our country uh from charlie munger to warren buffett to uh even uh, um politicians who greatly admire this the ccp system and are not only do they openly admire but then we have an entire gamut of politicians that are completely bought and paid for by them so right. the bigger thing is why are they showing us that it's almost like they're conditioning us to like, Hey, this is going to come happen to you guys too one day. Like the more that they show us. And uh, because like, that is what they want. I mean, that's, they, they have the ability to do that with a CBD system in there yeah. because then they can tie it back to, you know, making it so that you can never be able to have a full on, uh, you know, uh, protesting. That, right. that can actually achieve results. So who knows? Well, I don't want to like dog on the Chinese people themselves. I think there's probably not probably there's a ton of great people over there that are in a bad situation. I just, uh, I no, see it's some their of the system. Yeah. It's the system, you know, and it's like, I see what's going on. And I do think to your point, I think the Justin Trudeau's of the world 
um, look at it with envy. I mean, he made some tweet today or yesterday being like, Purchase people in China them. have a right to protest and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> They're literally protesting COVID. And when he's saying they have a right to protest it, and I think like I retweeted Doomberg or somebody else, but like he was just like shutting people's right down to do it. So I think there are a lot of people and it's not just Charlie Munger, like Ray Dalio seems to be obsessed with China, really thinks Absolutely. it's, you know, uh, the best thing. And it's just like, I just think that uh, we there's a lot of things that are happening over there that we should very much try to avoid happening here. And to your point, okay. I think they want them to happen here. Um, mm -hmm. But anyways, that's it's off the Bitcoin topic. It's just something that's in your face a lot on Twitter. And and it does bother me. But maybe your point, I'm just buying into the the negative hype and watching too much of it. I'm sure there's like, some places in China where it's completely fine and they look at us and they're like these people over there. But anyways, I don't know, but man, it's been good. I've kept you for yeah. over an hour and it's been fun. We'll put this out soon. I'm excited to see your guys' continued success and um, really uh, can't wait to see what you guys do next. And I'm glad you uh, took the time to come on. At any time, Max, it's my pleasure. All right, Tom. Thanks, man. Thank you. Thank you.